do greet you in the name of Jesus, our Savior, the one that, that invites us to that mercy seat. A wonderful privilege we have that we can come boldly to the throne of grace to obtain help in time of need and to worship, to, to there abide in the vine. Appreciated many of the thoughts of our of our Sunday school class and the stimulating things that we we discussed and, and thought about. On a side note, my wife and four of her children are not here. They went to Ohio on a on a quick trip to be at the bridal shower of her last sister that is getting married. So they traveled out Friday and will be coming back. This afternoon. I think that song that we just sang had something about needs and as we, our spirits blend and friend holds fellowship with friend. And I had to, as I meditated on what message the Lord would have me share her this morning. Realizing the, the different needs that we have. David in his prayer prayed that our needs would be met. Now what are those needs? And how, how does the Lord endeavor have me to endeavor to, to meet those through the Scriptures and through His, through His Spirit? And that is, that is a, a sobering responsibility. And I covet your prayers. And for each minister of the gospel as they stand before you, we need your prayers. I've chosen to go back to the book of, of Acts and glean some more lessons from that portion of Scripture. Before we go there, I'm going to ask some questions. I've given you a little bit of a clue already, but how many of you know who Parmenas was? Does that name ring a bell? You can say it. How about Nicanor? The deacon, as was Nicholas and Timon and Prochorus. We don't know those names very good, do we? We know the name Philip, and we know the name Stephen. But these men had in common a calling to serve the church. And I would say that with that they had another thing some other things in common that we are called to also have in common with them turn with me to Acts chapter 6 
Acts chapter 6, I'll read the first seven verses this time. And in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews, because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. And a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. Do you see here what I believe we all need to have in common with these men? They were to look out seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. I'm going to be looking at those a bit more in depth shortly. But as I looked at this, I, in light of, of the days in which we live, there's, there's ideas that we hear. And in, in this first verse, I had to, had to think, well, it appears that racism or an accusation was prevalent here. Now, we may have... That's a popular term that wasn't used then. But here there was someone saying, here's a certain people that's not being treated fairly. These weren't Gentiles, but they were Grecians who were actually Jewish proselytes or Jews that had lived, were living, had been living in other cultures and regions and spoke Greek language and perhaps adopted a bit more of the Greek culture. And there was a problem because there was a, a differentiation that they saw here. And the, the apostles took this problem seriously. And they called the people together, the, the church there, they said, come together, we need to discuss this. Come to, a, to figure out what to do. And they had a proposal. Look ye out among you. I believe that this is significant. The disciples, the apostles there, didn't know everyone personally. And they knew that they couldn't be the ones to go out and choose the ones that would best fill this role of, of ministry. But they gave the qualifications and they gave the instructions. And I'm glad that we, likewise, when we choose leaders, we present qualifications, and we ask the people, the body, to look out men. Men that would be able to be leaders. And while not all believers are at the same place in spiritual maturity, I believe that this call of, of qualifications 
affects us all and that we should all endeavor to be qualified servants to accept the call of God wherever it may be, whether it's a specific call of the church or whether it's just serving in in background ways, in the quiet ways in the church of teaching Sunday school and, and leading out in different ways, leading our families. Each one. And it goes back to that being fruitful, that, that idea of abiding in the vine. We expect fruit from a vine. The passage there in John makes that very clear. God expects fruit. There's a term that I've recently been made aware of, and it's a, it's a term that relates to a, a concept or a, a principle that is not new. The term is dualism. Have any idea what that might mean? A word similarly perhaps could be used as hypocrisy. But in in John, first John, there's the doctrine of of separation, those that proclaim one thing and live another. It's a it's a concept that's throughout the New Testament, if we look and see. And it's prevalent in our world today. And at some point in the future, Lord willing, I'd like to look at that more in depth and and see how it can be affecting us. But proclaiming that I can abide in the vine and produce no righteous or no fruit is a form of dualism because it doesn't go together. It's hypocrisy to think we can can be Christ and not live as Christ. And so here's a call for all of us to examine our lives and to be encouraged in our walk with the Lord. These seven men were to be of honest report. Other translations would say of good reputation or of good repute. And I'd like to look at a few other verses in, that, that speak to this. One is in 1 Timothy 3. There it is, a list of qualifications that Paul is laying out for leaders. And he says in verse 7, Moreover, he must have a good report of them that are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. A very important aspect of our lives is that we have lives that are of, of integrity that those that are around us would have nothing evil to say. Well, he says this, but he doesn't do it. He proclaims to be truthful, but we see how he bypasses the codes. He goes around the rules. Matthew 5 puts it in a different light. It says, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely. In other words, they may say these things, but it's not true. If they say things evil against us falsely for the sake of Christ, that is saying that, yes, you will have an honest report, even though men may want to twist it. In Titus chapter 2, verses 6 to 8, 
Young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded, in all things showing thyself a pattern of good works, in doctrine showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. That's a beautiful picture of, of a godly person. And I, I boil it down again to that one word, integrity. Integrity. He that is of the contrary part will have nothing evil to say. I believe that to, to have this honest report and this good reputation, it falls that it follows the next two being full of the Holy Ghost, filled with the Holy Spirit. And we all have that, that command in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. It says, And be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Filled with the Spirit. Barnabas had that testimony in Acts eleven twenty four. It says he was a man that was, was full of the Spirit. What does that look like? How do we have that? Are you filled with the Spirit? How do we see that? The Spirit is like the wind, right? The wind bloweth where it will and and we can't really see it. How do we know that we're filled with the Spirit? Well, Galatians 5 gives us a very clear picture that is very encompassing. Galatians 5, we know these verses well. But they still ring true. Galatians 5, 22 to 26. But the fruit of the Spirit, the evidence of the Spirit, is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vain glory, provoking one another, envying one another. If we live in the Spirit, let us walk in the Spirit. Another Translation puts it this way. If we live in the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. And I like that thought. We're, we're endeavoring to, to walk as, as Christ walked and keep in step and in tune. Listen to the Spirit. Be attuned and attentive. When God would speak to our hearts where we are not being gentle, where we are not long-suffering, In Luke 11, verse 9, Jesus gives us some instructions. And in verse 13, he sums it up with giving us a very important promise. Luke 11, verses 9 to 13. And I say unto you, ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. 
If a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he give for a fish give him a serpent? Or if he shall ask an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? We'll stop there. You know, this morning, we were having to find breakfast on our own without the lady of the house, and I asked Jordan what he wanted, and well, he wanted a fried egg. Well, I fried him an egg. I didn't make him something that he wouldn't like. And if I, as a fallen father, want to give my child what he wants, how much more, it says in verse 13, if ye then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more should your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? And I don't think this is a one-time asking. I know I plead on a regular basis for God to give me the Holy Spirit in a deeper way, in a more full way, that I can be filled with the Spirit. And I trust that you ask that as well, that we can be full of the Holy Spirit and that we can bear fruit. And that fruit is born in many ways, in varied aspects. And I think this wisdom that is referenced there in verse 3 is an aspect of that fruit of being full of the Spirit. It says these brethren were to be full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom. And as I thought of this wisdom, where do we hear about wisdom? Well, Proverbs has a lot to say about wisdom and crying after wisdom and desiring wisdom and, it, and making it part of our life. Isn't Proverbs one of the books, part of the wisdom literature? And I heard someone say recently that that's Old Testament wisdom literature. And as we look at the New Testament, the book of James is wisdom literature in the New Testament. And there's a lot that James has to say about wisdom. Firstly, it's very similar to this this idea of asking. And in James 1 verse 5, it says, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. God wants to give us wisdom. He wants to fill us with wisdom. What does this wisdom look like? Well, we have an example of someone in the Old Testament that was filled with wisdom and the Spirit. Genesis 41, 38 and 39, speaking of, of Joseph there, it says, And Pharaoh said unto his servants, Can we find such an one as this is, a man in whom the Spirit of God is? And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, Forasmuch as God hath showed thee all this, there is none so discreet and wise as thou art. Pharaoh recognized that wisdom came from God. Joseph had said that. He said, I couldn't do this without God. But it was recognized here that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there was wisdom. Going back to James chapter 3. Turn with me to James chapter 3. I'd like to spend a little time here looking at these, these verses. They've been a, an inspiration to me as I've, I've studied them. James chapter 3, beginning at verse 13. 
I'd say before that, it's looking at how at, at dualism, can a fountain send out from the same place sweet water and bitter? See, that's, that's contrasting. It doesn't work. Can a fig tree bear olive berries? And then verse 13 says, Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. But if ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. We see here a contrast of worldly wisdom versus godly wisdom. Worldly wisdom, it says, will will come out in contention. My way pitted against your way. My way is the best. Be of bitter envying and strife. And then in verse 16, where envying and strife is, there is is confusion, there is frustration and every evil work. Bad fruit, rotten fruit, not the fruit of righteousness. But this wisdom that is from above, said as it is first pure, and I believe that this this true wisdom understands that purity of heart and mind must be maintained at any cost. You know, we face issues sometimes where we we face the thing of, of whether we're going to maintain integrity or keep peace. And I've been reading some books in the, over, the, over the past, I, I got one recently that, that deals with some church issues and a, a church division and looking at how do you balance truth and application of truth versus relationships. And that's an age-old question. And it's not an easy answer. Some groups have chosen that, re, that relationship and... and uh, The word I want just left. Loyalty trumps everything else. We must maintain peace. Others go on the other extreme and say, well, it doesn't matter what you think. It matters what I think. And we have an error on that side. But we do have here that wisdom must be pure. What we are must be pure. And I come back to that word integrity as we look at this. Pureness of heart in many different aspects. As you think of purity over peaceableness, I go back to Joseph. He didn't do things to just make life easy and and keep the noise down. When he was brought to face that temptation with Potiphar's wife, 
He maintained purity above peaceableness. Now that doesn't mean that peaceableness isn't important because it is very high on the list. But let's maintain our hearts in purity before God. Whether it's moral purity or whether it's simply the integrity of of maintaining that honest report of of openness with each other, of not hiding anything, of of being true to God, true to ourselves and, and with each other, and evaluating ourselves in the light of the truth of Scripture. Wisdom is first pure. Peaceableness is the next characteristic. Peaceableness. That is the opposite of the strife and the contention that is referenced in in the earlier wisdom of, of earthly wisdom, of things that are not pursued after God's way. There is strife. Here we are to be peaceable. A lot of these attributes just deal with our very natural responses to situations. When people talk with us, when we are crossed by someone, what is our response? Peaceable. Gentle. Perhaps gentle goes beyond just being peaceable or agreeable to that of being compassionate and caring for others and and looking for ways to see the needs in others in a a way that, that is active. Easy to be entreated. It's a humble man. Not out to defend myself, but easy to be entreated. Open to what others have to say into my life. Full of mercy and good fruits. Genuine fruitfulness. Without partiality and without hypocrisy. I think we know this verse fairly well. I would like us all to stand together though and and recite it, say it several times. I'll stand together. James 3.17 Let's say it twice. James 3, 17. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, and without hypocrisy. Thank you. You may be seated. I challenge you to meditate on that verse this week. 
There is tremendous power in that wisdom. And it relates directly to things in my life I've been thinking of the last several weeks. Those of you that were here the other Wednesday night, we, there was a term that Brother Ellis mentioned, and that is the term Galassenheit. And I've heard it, I may, some of you know more of what it means. It's, it's a, a German word. Some of you have a lot better grasp on it. But I've been challenged to, it's, it's nothing special, but it brings together so much into an easy word. And it's so full. And I keep finding verses as I'm, as I'm studying and reading that it's, oh, well, that's what it means. That, that's a, a picture of it, just to bring it down. And someone has, has put together a definition of a list of words that they all add on top of the other, and you get an, an idea of what Galassenheit is. And I'll, I'll read down through this list. So think this is compounding. It's... It's building. It's yieldedness with humility, calmness, composure, meekness, tranquility, imperturbability, serenity, poise, Sedateness, letting go, the opposite of self-assertion, a gentle spirit, submitting to God's will, brokenness, esteems others above self, the union and agreement of the inner experience with the outward response. And I think integrity was actually at the, at the top of that list in another, another listing. It's, it's that total encompassing of just being yielded to God and at peace with God. And it, it affects how we relate to each other. It affects how I think about things. And I, this has been time and again, I'm, I'm being very personal here, but in my life in the last week, or so, as I face something, as, as uh, something goes wrong, as it takes me an hour to do something that should have taken five minutes, and I'm all get frustrated about it. And, and it, the Lord says, no. Relax. It's okay. It's this, it's this yieldedness. It's this gentleness. It's peaceableness and I've been severely convicted in things that I am 
my, my men, it's not that I'm mean or angry or hurting or it's just it's a mental state of turmoil when it should be peace. God's in control. God, God sees, God knows. And it's little things. Wisdom that is from above. Pure, peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated. Full of mercy and good fruits without partiality and without hypocrisy. We can talk more about those another time. You can think about that verse, some of these ideas, and let God bring them to your mind and, and meditate on them. I'd like to move on here and look at, at what happened as these men that exhibited these traits of, of character and, and person the church found these seven men that, that had these attributes and brought them to the apostles. And the apostles laid their hands on them here, it says, and, and prayed. And, and I think that was their, their ordination. They were sent out. They were commissioned to do this job that, that would free up the, the apostles to continue their ministry in prayer and, and, and preaching and, and, and teaching. It says that the word of God increased and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. I find that both very encouraging and sobering that faithful leaders were used to fulfill God's purpose And that these faithful leaders were preaching and teaching, disseminating the word of God. And many people came to faith because of that. And whether it's the apostles or these seven that were, were called here, we hear very little about most of these throughout Scripture. History has some more to say. But we hear almost nothing about most of these men and yet their faithfulness and witness, no doubt, we know, made a great impact on the church. We do have a, a short record of, of Stephen's ministry and what happened to him. Continue reading here in Acts chapter 6, verses 8 to 15. It says, And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people, then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines, and Cyrenians, and Alexandrians, and them of Cilicia and of Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. A powerful testimony to his filling of the Holy Spirit and how that changed his life from and, and just enabled him to to speak truth, and he said these wonders and miracles, it was not him, it was the Spirit working in him because he was in tune and he had this, this faith and power. But we see here that the truth that he proclaimed 
brought him into contention with the learned establishment of the day. In verse 11, it says, They suborned men which said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council and set up false witnesses which said, This man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. And all that sat in the council, looking steadfastly on him, saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. These men that were disputing. I believe that this was, was these were some of the the well-educated. You know, it says here, men of Cilicia. Well, I understand that's where Paul was from. And he was a very educated man, as Saul, at the feet of Gamaliel. There were those here that knew. And yet, what did they do? They loved the darkness to the point of convincing men to lie about him. These weren't just bums off the street. These were people that knew the law. These were the teachers. And what did they do? They set up false witnesses. What's the law say? Exodus 20:16. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Or could you say instigate false witnesses too? <laughs> they went out of their way to do in defiance of the law. But as John 3 says in verse 19, and this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be manifest, that they are wrought in God. Sin loves darkness. And Stephen experienced that here. And we have come to expect that the world will appreciate us and our stand for truth and right and honesty and integrity. And some do. But I want us to know and to be reminded, as Peter says, though you know these things, the world is not, the world system does not value truth. And it will not be friendly to truth. Narrow is the way that leads to life. Jesus said in John 15, if they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. He makes it clear that if we are liked as his followers, that's the exception and not the rule. But our goal was not to be disliked or liked, but to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Following here in Acts chapter 7, we have... Stephen's defense. The defense of a man that was filled with the Holy Spirit. 
He reminded his audience of their history. It was his own history as well. And as he did that, they knew that he knew what they knew. He let them know. He knew their history. He knew what they knew. Their foundation that they were working on was the same. I'm just going to pull out a few verses. He goes through the history of, of, the, of the people of Israel. I'm going to jump in at, at verse 22 of Acts 7. It says, And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. And when he was full 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended him and avenged him that was oppressed and smote the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them. But they understood not. I think that's a key, a key point that he's pointing out here that, that they understood. It later goes on, it goes on to say what all Moses did and experienced. How God came to him after another 40 years and sent him. Going down to verse 34, it says, I have seen, I have seen the affliction of my people which is in Egypt. I have heard their groanings and am come down to deliver them. And now come. I will send thee to Egypt. That's what God said. Verse 35 says, This Moses, whom they refused, saying, Who made thee a ruler and a judge? The same did God send to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel, which appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out after he had showed wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness forty years. This is that Moses, which said unto the children of Israel, a prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren, like unto me, him shall ye hear. This is he that was in the church in the wilderness, which the angel, with the angel which spake to him in the Mount Sinai, and with our fathers, who received the lively oracles to give unto us, to whom our fathers would not obey, but thrust him from them, and in their hearts turned back again into Egypt, saying unto Aaron, Make us gods to go before us, for as this Moses, which brought us out of the land of Egypt, we wot not what has become of him. And we know they made a calf. They worshipped other gods. Stephen says, then the tabernacle was made. David desired to build a temple. But Solomon built the temple. And then in verse... 48, he says, Howbeit the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands, as saith the prophet, Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What house will ye build me, saith the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Hath not my hand made all these things? Stephen says, Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so do ye. Of which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted and have slain them and showed before of the and have slain them which showed before of the coming of the just one of whom ye have now been the betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it 
And when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. And he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing on the right hand of God, and said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. And men that loved darkness rather than light covered their ears, yelled so they couldn't hear what he was saying, and stoned him. I found it very interesting, the comparison of Moses and Jesus. He didn't make it straight out in a way. But he said, Moses came to deliver the people. They didn't recognize him. Moses came back later to deliver the people. And he said, a prophet shall the Lord your God raise up like unto me. I think these these men understood the implications of that. They rejected Moses. The children of Israel rejected Moses and these men had rejected Christ. I have to wonder, did Stephen have to be as aggressive as he was? As antagonistic as he was? But I believe that he had a message for these people that they needed to hear again. As we had looked through Acts 1 through 5, we saw how many times Peter confronted those religious leaders with their sin. And it wasn't pretty. And I'm challenged with that because my tendency is to sidestep confrontation. And maybe at the, at the loss of truth being spoken. We don't look for trouble. But we speak the truth. Stephen was at peace with God. And in verse 59. It says, and they stoned Stephen. Calling upon God. He calling upon God said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He was at peace. He was full of the Holy Spirit. He was yielded. And as a last demonstration of his faith and character, he voiced his forgiveness to those that were murdering him. He couldn't affect their salvation, but the least he could do was plead for God to be merciful to them. And I'm encouraged by that in his life. His last last deed was that of of mercy and desiring God to be merciful to them. My challenge to each of you is to be men and women that exhibit the character and the attributes that we can be like Stephen, we can be faithful, we can be like those other servants that we hear nothing more about but that we can be faithful and in proclaiming the truth and in furthering the kingdom of God. And once again, James 3.18. Let God speak to you in that verse this week and the coming weeks. Much of Scripture, all of Scripture is given for our edification, for our, for our learning. But let's make that verse one that this week we 
we take to heart and see if we're responding in ways that are pure and peaceable and gentle, easy to be entreated, with mercy, and with genuineness, without hypocrisy. Let's kneel together for prayer. Our Father, thank you for this time this morning of gathering together as believers, as brothers and sisters in the Lord, and for the common bond that we have as fellow branches on the vine. So, Father, may your, your spirit flow in us and through us that we can bear fruit, that the world may see that we are your people, that our lives would be pure without hypocrisy, that our lives would be lives of integrity. We would have a good report, a good reputation, not because of who we are, but because of you and your spirit bearing fruit in our lives. So give us wisdom, Lord. Give us wisdom in the choices and the decisions that we make as we respond to life in the very ways that it comes. May we exercise ourselves unto godliness and unto this fruit of the Spirit and this heavenly wisdom that only comes from you. That you can receive glory and honor and that others would see and desire to know our Savior our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus. And they would give us courage and strength to say what we need to say in the, in the way that you would have us to. So thank you for this body here this morning. Bless each one abundantly. Make us a blessing. And receive our worship and our praise is acceptable in your sight. We ask these things in Jesus' name.